When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host Anthony. This week Dr. Ian McInnes is back to talk about the seminal agreement between Tyrion and Bronn and the beginning of an important relationship there. Dr. McInnes is senior lecturer at the University of Highlands and Islands. His book is Scotland's Second War of Independence 1332 to 1357. Steve and I will continue our journey through Season 5. Today we're covering The High Sparrow. A lot happens this episode. And in my bird's eye view, we will continue the theme of knighthood. Specifically, I'm asking the question, how does one become a knight in Westeros? There seems to be some contradiction in the primary documents. Without further ado, here is Dr. Ian A. McInnes. Middle of the afternoon here, and it's been a rather wet and soggy day here in the Highlands. I had to rescue my cat from the rain. I was in a, a two-hour meeting where she was outside for all of, and then was came in looking rather bedraggled. So. And this cat has a name. Uh, she's called Chloe, so uh, she's uh, Chloe. But she, she she's locked away now, so she can't annoy me. <laughs> all right. Well, hopefully she's warm and getting drier. <laughs> I I did dry it off when she came in, so she should be okay now. All right, then. Ian, we're talking about Tyrion's sixth POV chapter. I feel like there's a lot that happens in this chapter, even though it's mostly just dialogue. Mm, yeah. There's a lot of strategic work that Tyrion's <laughs> doing in this chapter. Yeah, I think there's also there seems to be quite a lot of kind of foreshadowing of things to come. I don't know, I might be giving Martin too much credit, but uh, <laughs> but, it, but it does seem to presage things that will happen down the line. Say more about that. Uh, so foreshadowing what? Well, I mean, the, the obvious one is that the relationship between Tyrion and his father, um, you know, when he tells the story of uh, his, his his marriage as a young boy to the girl Taisha, and then right. his his father then obviously breaking it up and 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 dealing with the pair of them quite abysmally. Um, yeah. But but there is that early suggestion already. Well, you know, and Bron- then Bronn says, well, "Yeah, you know, I, I would kill a man. I don't yeah. care who he is. I'd kill the man who did that to me." And uh, and Tyrion responds, "You may get your chance, uh, <laughs> but, but perhaps right. thinking that someone else will do the deed for him rather than doing it himself, right. as he ends up doing." But right, yeah, so it does very much demonstrate the state of the relationship between father and son, and that's that's before we get into any of the other issues that that separate the two. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to read a short synopsis of this chapter, and then we can talk about it. Okay. After riding all day, Tyrion and Bronn are camped near the high road, heading down the mountain. Tyrion suggests a fire and some game for dinner if Bronn can manage it. Bronn observes that doing so will surely bring the mountain clown, the, the mountain clans, not mountain clowns, that would be a whole different story. <laughs> the mountain clowns down upon them. 
But Tyrion has a plan that involves being found. The night darkens and they eat roasted goat and talk over old and new relationships. Eventually Tyrion sleeps. He's woken by Bronn and finds that they are surrounded by stone crows. After several threats and insults, Tyrion asks the stone crows to escort him safely down the mountain. In exchange, he will give them the Vale of Arryn. So, Ian, uh, what do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or shall you and I climb the Ladder of Chaos? Um, I, I suppose I was going to raise the theme of Bronn as, as the kind of mercenary warrior, if that would be of, of interest. I, I would love to talk about Bronn. Bronn. Bronn is one of the very few characters that we've met in this book so far that is lowborn, mm. quote unquote. To me, he's fascinating. I would love to talk about him. Yeah, I mean, I think it gives a proper insight into him and his his thoughts and his beliefs, although some of that comes from, not from him, but from Tyrion's rather accurate reading of him. Um, yeah. But, but that, that whole idea of Bronn as the, the, the sellsword, as the, as the mercenary who's willing to fight for anyone who's willing to pay him um, and, and seeing, you know, changing sides as, as opportunity demands, but, but falling into this relationship with Tyrion, which will be, you know, long-lasting and, and, and ultimately will be incredibly advantageous for Braun himself. Yeah, everything we know about Braun is either from Kat's perspective or Tyrion's perspective so far. And so what's Kat's perspective of Braun? Well, he moves like a panther and, you know, he's he's like a cat and the, the sword is part of his own arm and he's this killing machine, basically. Mm. And, you know, he, he's laughing too often at Tyrion's stupid jokes. And Tyrion goes so far in this chapter is just directly call him scum. Yeah. So it's interesting that, like, all right, so maybe Braun is scum. You know, <laughs> maybe he is just a, a killer. But I think it's important to note that we're really seeing the perspective of this particular character from someone who is, you know, a member of the social elite, right? Mm. But, but I think at the same time, Tyrion makes it very clear that, you know, he doesn't care. <laughs> you know, yeah. he, 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 call, he calls Braun out on, on his his humble, you know, beginnings. Um, but that in itself is not a problem. I think Tyrion values him for what he is. That idea of the sword being an extension of his arm. I mean, that will come back to that. At various times that he is obviously a skillful fighter uh, and, and mm. you know, um, Tyrion even goes so far as to suggest that he's almost a, as good a swordsman as Jamie, and, and, you know, Jamie's yeah. supposed to be one of the greatest swordsmen in the land. So so you obviously recognize his innate skill and talent. I want to read this one passage. It's uh, here's Bronn talking with Tyrion. Bronn has is recounting why he killed Chigan along the road. And Bronn says he was as good as dead. And his moaning was going to bring them down on us. Chicken would have done the same for me, and he was no friend. Only a man I rode with. Make no mistake, dwarf. I fought for you, but I do not love you. I mean, we, you could read that in two ways. You could read Bronn saying, I do not love you, in the sort of the modern sense. Like, mm. hey, we're not friends. I'm not doing this because, uh, you know, we're friendly. Um, you know, I'm not your big brother beating up the school bully or whatever. Mm. You could also read this with this ancient political sense of love where you've got this relationship between the Lord and the lesser Lord, where the more powerful Lord 
basically takes care of those in his purview. Mm. And in reply, the lesser lord pledges love to the the more powerful lord. And love in this way is always used as sort of this political sense. This is much, I guess this is maybe clear in the ancient world, maybe not so much in the medieval world, but maybe maybe it is. I, do, do we see that kind of political love language in the medieval period? Um, I think to an extent. I mean, I think there's always that element of a, a reciprocal relationship between a lord and a man. Uh, and the man can be, you know, as you say, a lesser lord, it can be a knight. Uh, or it can be someone, someone further down the chain. But, but at all times, there is a reciprocity. You know, the Lord should uh, look after the the man. He may put him up in his household. He mm-hmm. may feed him. He may uh, clothe him, uh, provide him with robes, and take him into his service. In return, the man is there to to fight for him, to fight with him, to be loyal and to be. Uh, I suppose, honorable to an extent. Uh, yeah, in, and in loyalty the there sort of is a stand-in for that word for love, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that, that would be the way to look at it. And, of course, Braun is sort of shitting on this arrangement. You know? <laughs> He's saying, look, this is this is not a vassal scissoring relationship. Uh, oh. I'm not going to raise my banners and come to your aid simply because of honor. You don't love me. I don't love you. If there is money to be had, that's where I'm going to be. Yeah, and I think that he comes up with that great line of "Don't go looking for me to bend the knee and malord you every time you yeah. take a shit." I'm no man. <laughs> yeah, that's story. right. Um, that's right. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It's 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 a transactional relationship, and and I suppose that's that doesn't mean that the kind of reciprocal relationship that I, I just referred to is is any less of a transaction. But but I think there's 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 less um, mm-hmm. romanticism of the relationship. There's less. It is purely he gets paid. And he will protect Tyrion, and Tyrion recognizes that uh, absolutely when he goes back to that that point about if I die, the money stops, you know, <laughs> and, right, and you'll be the right. only one to mourn me at my funeral. Um, so I, I think each of them go into the, the relationship knowing exactly how they relate to each other. But I, I don't think that's again, I don't think that's completely out of place. A, a lot of again, kind of medieval examples will have men fighting for money and, and changing sides whenever the money runs out or, or you know, more money is offered. That's mm. it, it, it may have been medieval soldiers or sometimes frowned upon uh, for taking money and that kind of, before the 14th century, you have a situation where the lords especially would refuse pay because being paid for military service was seen as a negative thing. But as the medieval period progresses, once you get into the later, for, uh, the 14th century onwards, pay for military service and money are absolutely intertwined uh, so the the divisions between why the different reasons as to why you serve are becoming far more muddled uh, and people serving for honor people serving because they're fighting for their lord and people serving for money are all essentially doing the same thing and so i think again braun braun rather usefully sits there and challenges the assumptions of the Westerosi knights uh, and, and the, the nature of Westerosi society. Uh, and he's quite happy, I think, doing that. But that's why he's also kind of frowned upon and, and treated as something lesser, although Tyrion largely doesn't do that because he recognizes yeah. exactly what the relationship is. And then there's that little uh, line that I read. It has kind of this bookend a little bit later. Uh, Tyrion's... <laughs> Here's Tyrion, what Tyrion says. He says, did I offend you? My pardons, but you are scum, Braun. Make no mistake. So, 
It was sort of like, you know, Bronn said, make no mistake, I do not love you. Tyrion replies and says, make no mistake, you're scum. You know, they're kind of exchanging bards, uh, sorry, barbs, but um, uh, that'd be an odd thing to do to exchange bards. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm done with this musician. You, you may have him, sir. <laughs> uh, now, they're exchanging barbs, and, but, but it, it's true. He absolutely is in a position of a lord, but he's not a lord that's owed any love. And Braun is a, in a position as sort of as a hired sword. And Tyrion, you know, is not going to blow any smoke up his ass. From my perspective, you're scum. This seems to work for their relationship, I guess. <laughs> I, I suppose I think Tyrion is, is almost kind of playing with Braun in terms of how he sometimes treated himself. <laughs> um, you know, uh-huh. I, I mean, Tyrion is, is, as we've seen, looked down upon by you know, the rest of Westerosi society is looked down by members of his own family. Right. Um, you know, so he's, he, he perhaps sees in Braun something of himself. I mean, they, they share or, or will share various past, pastimes, whether that's drinking or gambling or whoring. Um, you know, it's, mm-hmm. the, 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 he is a lord, but I think he recognizes his own position is not in any way solid. He, his, yeah. The, the main reason that he's treated with any kind of deference at all is because of who his father is, who his family is, and how much money his family has. Um, and without that surname, I think Tyrion would have been, and as we see later on when he kind of loses all that, you know, mm-hmm. he's in danger of, of becoming something far less. Yeah. Uh, and it's all these wits that get him out of it. That's right. And, you know, we could talk a little bit more about Tyrion, but I want to make sure that we. Uh, you know, we give Braun his due because mm. he is such an interesting character, and I really haven't had a, a really great um, opportunity so far to talk about him on this podcast. One thing that Tyrion says to Braun is that you took up Lady Catelyn's cause because you saw an opportunity, but at the end of that relationship, it would have been very distasteful. Here's a few coins. Thank you for escorting me to Winterfell, sort of thing. In other words, there wouldn't have been a long-term benefit for Braun as sort of a member of the guard of House Stark or something like that. Because the Starks value honor, or at least that's that's Tyrion's perspective, right? Mm, yeah. yeah. And, I, and then, I, I, of course, Tyrion says, of course, but with me, yeah. it'll be different because I don't value honor. I <laughs> I value, you know, I, I'm much more practical, and I think that you're going to be happier in my service. But I think that later on you'll see that Tyrion does get unhappy when Bronn does exactly what Tyrion accuses him of doing. You know, he he, he takes the knighthood that's given to him by, by Tywin, and Tyrion is annoyed at that because he almost sees that as a betrayal. And, and, and then as Bronn himself advances... He loses Braun as that kind of companion and, and mercenary because Braun has now elevated himself uh, into the into the ranks of those <laughs> who he often despised. Well, um, and in that way, Braun and Shay have a parallel. Yeah, because here we go. You know, here's Tyrion has basically had to buy a friend in Braun, mm. and he's had to buy a lover in Shay. Mm. And as long as those two are in his employ. They're they're very loyal. Mm. As soon as there's no money <laughs> being exchanged, <laughs> you know, and maybe she's different because you know it could be that she actually did love him. Mm. But 
he, that's part of Tyrion's predicament. How would he know? Like, yeah. how would he know how much Braun does really enjoy his company, or how much? How would he know how much Shay does love him? Because, of course, of how they began their relationship, it was very transactional. Well, the other comparison is with between Braun and and with Podrick, who I suppose kind of takes over that position uh, for a while, anyway. Um, mm. in, in, in Tyrion's service and it's it, it's a very different it's a very different relationship. I mean uh Podrick Payne is a is a Lannister retainer and, and, and is properly in the service of Tyrion, whereas Braun is very much fulfilling that transactional mm. part of things. Uh, and and they are two completely different figures. Um but in terms of the relationship that Tyrion has with them over the longer term, I think that they are they are quite different. And obviously, the the pathway that both characters kind of follow is uh, with with rather differing results. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Braun ultimately is just, yeah. I think I think he is out for himself. He is there to earn as much money as he can and to advance himself where he can. I think he. I don't think there's any doubt he has a liking for Tyrion or he develops a liking for Tyrion. Mm-hmm. I think he appreciates his no nonsense approach. He appreciates that he's not your typical lord. Uh, he doesn't treat him like crap and, <laughs> and expect him to do yeah, what sure. he tells him to, although he does treat him badly at various times, but it, it's the kind of honesty in the relationship uh, rather than anything else. And at that point about, yeah, yeah, the, the, the Starks are looking for honourable warriors, I think that, that again speaks to the differing nature or the different approaches of these families and the individuals within it. And Tyrion's comment about about Eddard Stark and Caitlin Stark and, and, and their desire for honour and all the rest of it, I mean, it's said somewhat contemptuously uh, i don't think i don't think Tyrion thinks much of them because of that and and so many other characters will tell them such notions have no place in the society in which they live mm-hmm. i want to talk a little bit about uh taisha this is the first we're introduced to really sort of Tyrion's. i guess we could call it Tyrion's origin story mm. so they're waiting and i think Tyrion knows that lighting the fire is going to bring the mountain clans on them and but they might as well talk while they pass the time and uh, i guess he's he's got this song in his head that uh taisha now now we should also say that taisha is not named she's just called the crofter's daughter in this chapter he's got the song in his head that taisha used to sing and then this brings up the story about how he and Jamie chased off these, you know, robbers or brigands or whoever they were. And then, of course, that occasion allows Tyrion to meet this crofter's daughter. He takes her to dinner and then, of course, takes her to bed. And then, you know, shortly after they're married uh, by a drunken septon. And for, for two, it's like two weeks of bliss. 13 year old Tyrion is married, right? And then, of course, what happens next is that I guess either Tywin or Jamie reveals to Tyrion that she is a sex worker that they've hired to pretend to fall in love with Tyrion. Because, of course, Jamie's just trying to, you know, get get Tyrion a girl. Yep. Um, and I think later on in the books, we're meant to question this story. But in this one in the story, Tyrion absolutely believes that this is the case. Mm. And it ends with this horrific scene of Taisha being used by several of these uh, Lannister guard. And then, of course, paid for her uh, troubles. 
and Tyrion goes last and pays a gold instead of a silver, whatever. It's just a it's it's a horrific and, and tragic story. I think it's meant to be tragic for Tyrion, mm. but certainly tragic for her. And then of course we have this is the second time that we've seen a story kind of like this in the story because of course Cat had previously recalled when Baelish who didn't have social standing was trying to connect himself to House Tully through Catelyn and that didn't work out for for <laughs> Baelish and so you really have this picture of these class distinctions and the attempt to marry because you've fallen in love ends tragically in this Ooh. world no and I, I think it's well, I suppose it's a couple of things I, I suppose it, it emphasizes the or it re-emphasizes the nature of society. Um, you know, that it, it makes no bones about the position of women uh, within Westerosi society or, or the, the structures of society where, the, you know, the lordly families largely can do what they want with people um, and, and women especially. Uh, and and that's that's just how things are. And I think we are supposed to see this as a, as a quite appalling... Um, you know, series of events, but you're right. I think you know that, that because it's being told by Tyrion, we do have that kind of sympathy for Tyrion. We, we, it's constructed within the bounds of you know him being a misshapen dwarf, and and the, the, the subtext in terms of Jamie thinking he should get a girl is because you know what what women would want to be with him. Mm. Um, that's the kind of unspoken bit of it when he's telling the story. But yes, also at the same time, the fact that Tywin's. Um, Parental skills are problematic when it comes to when it comes to Tyrion in particular. But, Delicately but as, said. Well, yeah, but as we'll see with all these children, is deeply problematic. And I suppose ultimately it comes back to that lingering thing that Tywin ultimately blames Tyrion for the death of his wife, um, and 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 any opportunity he gets to to punish Tyrion is is an opportunity. I, th- I thought it was quite interesting that Tyrion, when he's telling that story, absolutely lays the blame squarely on his father. And obviously it's the blame for you know, mm. what happens at the end of the story. But he doesn't seem to lay any blame on Jamie for getting him into that position in the first place. Who, yeah. Jamie has effectively set this whole thing up um, because, as you said, he thinks it's time that his brother was with a woman. But he doesn't seem to have any... Or he doesn't give away any misgivings about, about Jamie in this uh in this particular tale and indeed as we'll see as the series goes on their relationship is actually a very close one a very strong one um so i think that i thought was quite interesting as well yeah Tyrion's gonna be able to i think Tyrion's just going to forgive jamie almost anything <laughs> because i think jamie's the only one in his in, in all of his life mm. that has ever shown him any kindness yeah now of course this story is pretty bad. Mm. I mean, this is not a kind story. Either Jamie has lied to Tyrion to get him with a girl and then allowed this thing to happen, or Jamie has lied for Tywin in telling Tyrion that the woman that he loves is actually a sex worker. Mm. Um in either case, you know, Tyrion uh, Jamie is not on Tyrion's <laughs> side. But again, of course, you know, Tyrion's going to forgive his brother almost anything. And I suppose it comes back to, I mean, Jamie is a problematic figure throughout, made more so by, obviously, the 
the differences between the books and the and the, the TV in some parts. I mean, I mean yeah. Jamie, Jamie's an ongoing problem. Um, I suppose the, the other thing in the background is, of course, you know, Martin's treatment of women. If we kind of scale back and look at it as a piece of fiction, you know, it's it's that assumption that this is how women are treated in certain societies or in certain periods of mm-hmm. time. Um, and so this is this is you know it's fine to write about, but you know there is a <laughs> there is a recurring theme throughout a lot of this in terms of the mistreatment of female characters. Um, and this is I mean this is a relatively early example, but there will be plenty more. Uh, and I suppose this is where this is where Martin comes in for criticism in terms of how he deals with these female characters and and how he uses and abuses them uh, throughout. Yeah, I think we could even broaden it and say. You know, this is a world where powerful people use less powerful people mm. for their purposes. And I think that, uh, you know, we have a few notable exceptions in this book. But I guess we could also say, look, that there's a lot of parallels between this world and our world. Mm. There's always powerful people that will use less powerful people. It's just, you know, maybe it's just uh, a little bit more discreet. Um <laughs> than you know in this feudal system i suppose the worry though from a medievalism perspective is that you then get people assuming that this is demonstrative of of the medieval because that's what they expect the medieval period to look like you know it's it's nasty it's Mm. dangerous it's brutal that people are all treated appallingly and women particularly and that's not to not to suggest they weren't but the inherent danger is that that comparison made with the medieval is, is that you know it's something that happened a long time ago and that point you made about what's happening in martin's own time is sometimes perhaps a bit lost to his modern day audience who who, yeah. who, who associate it with a, a fictionalized medieval past and not with the present right or even worse if this period time period is idealized you know these are the good old days <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like uh like <laughs> Good for whom? (laughs) Good for very few. Good good if you're wealthy and uh... yeah, that's right. To the right family and the you're the right gender, and you know you're, you know you happen to live in a, you know little sliver of history where your family's not at war. You know that that kind of thing. Um, So yeah, so I'm I'm curious. uh, Maybe we talk a little bit more about Tyrion's play here. And he's already sort of made a play with Mord to get out of the sky cells, right? Mm-hmm. And he's a desperate man. He's actually thinking about, you know, his own death. He thinks he he thinks he won't last very long. So he basically used Mord to get out of the sky cell, and he sort of used this trial by combat and making this gamble on bronze opportunism. And then, of course, he's going to make another play with these mountain clans. So I, I wonder if we talk a little bit about that. I think you're right in terms of the desperation. He perhaps doesn't have any choice. But I think at the same time, it's also about him being kind of quick-witted. He can think on his feet. He's almost looking for an opportunity to persuade people. I think that that whole thing with the, the mountain clans uh, is very much about there isn't there isn't an alternative. I mean, Braun obviously thinks that there is. You know, you travel by night, you travel quickly, uh, you, you avoid uh, being spotted, and you get out of it. And, and and Tyrion's kind of reasoning is sound in terms of yeah, that's how you fall down a mountain and break your neck. Um, but there's all, also a bit of you almost think that he's wanting to confront them. He he wants the opportunity to come face to face with them because he believes 
that he can talk his way out of it. You know, he, he talks about it yeah. in terms of, of rolling the dice, which suggests that it's, you know, it's random chance. But I think he actually has belief and faith in his own, you know, silver-tongued ability to talk his way out of trouble. And obviously, in this instance, it works. Uh, again, as we'll see as the series goes on, that's not always the case. Yeah. But, but in this one, it is. And he, he he's able to benefit from it. Maybe this is unanswerable, but you could read this chapter as sort of Tyrion trying to survive, and he thinks his best chance at survival is offering the Stone Crows something that no one else has ever offered them. Recognized land ownership. But there's also part of this that makes me think, maybe he's pissed. Maybe he's <laughs> pissed at, at Lysa, mm. and he's thinking, you know what? I can uh, throw my weight around too here. Maybe if I could get these mountain clans to rise up against the veil, that'll be a nice little retribution for the the harm you've caused me. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, he is offering something that's not his to give. Um, you know, he, he's offering them an opportunity uh, and, you know, potentially weapons um, to make their attempt to take the veil more practical, um, you know, the, instead of the instead of the scythes and the and the pitchforks that mm. some of them are armed with, you know, they, they can be armed with, with Lannister weapons and, and maybe mm. even with Lannister support. So, yeah, that, that makes that a, a possibility. But ultimately, it's not his to give. And I think as well that in the in the position we're in, in the narrative, full-scale war hasn't actually broken out yet. This is still families feuding with each other and manoeuvring right. to, to, to take out one or the other. And it's Lannister and Stark and 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 the Vale is obviously allied with with the Starks, but but it's not it's not whole scale wholesale war as it'll become, and the fact that he's he's offering up the Vale, yeah, I think as you say that that's that there may well be a, a kind of revenge element in it, uh, getting back at, at Lysa Arryn for her, her treatment of him, mm-hmm. but I think also that there is that kind of calculation, and that kind of tactical thinking again showing that Tyrion can overcome his perhaps his physical issues by using his brain. But but also that, that he is actually rather like his father, <laughs> you know that, that there is that he is thinking of the bigger picture. Yeah. He is thinking of how to bring men to his side or to bend men to his will, uh, and how he can use people. Was might be worth thinking about how he he does that with Braun as well. I think in an in an instance like this, it does actually show that that Tyrion is very like Tywin. Uh, I don't mm. think either of them would necessarily wish to recognize the fact, but but, but I, I don't think it's debatable. In that way, it's sort of that big picture, and then, of course, the, the use of the resources around them, and many of those resources being actually other people, you know, those two are both going to use the tools at their disposal to advance. Um, he, but Tyrion will often use humor, and Tywin does not. Mm-hmm. And I think that Tyrion has used humor with both Braun and the Stone Crows. You know, sort of early on, on their way up the mountain, Tyrion is sort of telling jokes and getting Bronn to laugh, and of course, endearing himself so that people are don't just view him in one way. And then, of course, on the way down the mountain, what does he do with the Stone Crows? He makes them laugh, you know? Yeah. They say, you know, how, how would you like to die? And he says, I'd like to die, you know. When in my own bed, at the age of 80, with a belly full of wine and a girl's mouth around my cock. <laughs> <laughs> and then that makes them laugh and of course that's his that's all he needs is that tiny little 
connection, that little relational connection, so that he can be heard. You know, Ooh. so people are not just viewing him as a motley fool who is only good for making the women laugh and milking the the cows or whatever. <laughs> But once he can connect with someone on that level of humor, then they're willing to listen to him. And that's when he pulls out the purse and says, I can make you rich or I can make you this. And this is your opportunity at advancement. Mm. And of course, they're going to listen to that for sure. Right. Yeah, I think I suppose it's just interesting that he feels the need to have the, the, the community bit first. Um uh, or, or that that's required. I, I suppose it comes back to who he is, what he is, and and, and what he looks like. Uh, and yeah, that that comment, kill Braun, but take the little man because he can. He'll keep the you know he'll make the children laugh. Um, yeah. You know yeah. that's. Uh, I think that's. I think Tyrion probably recognizes how he's perceived and how he's portrayed, and that that even if he does wave the as you say wave the post first, that that won't necessarily break through because they can't see beyond what he is and who he is and so yes he needs that kind of disarming element first I, I suppose it just it goes back to, to Tyrion having learned harsh lessons in terms of what it takes for people to listen to him to take him seriously to mm. that, that, that he needs he needs something else and that again you know back to the benefits of, of being of a of a rich noble family Tyrion should have them but perhaps doesn't necessarily have them and, and that actually he has to do more uh, mm. just to get people to listen to him despite the fact he's a noble and he comes from a wealthy family in our in our correspondence you mentioned that the stone crows seem to fall into this category of irregular forces and i wondered if you could say a little bit more about that yeah i mean i think the, the way they're depicted in this episode and and in the earlier one where the the ambushed uh caitlin's troops on on the way to the eerie you know the, there's almost I mean, a medieval comparison would be with like the Welsh or the Scots or, or, mm. or even the you know Scottish Highlanders. You know, mm. they're, they're depicted as these kind of lesser men, less civilized, um, maybe slightly backward in their ways, whether societally or, or indeed in their weapons or their armor. Uh, you know, they're, they're poorer. They, they live in the the Highland areas or the, the hilly areas, away from the the agricultural or the agriculturally productive lands of of the lowlands. Um, you know, there's plenty of, of medieval parallels you can make there. Um, but but then Tyrion's recruitment of them uh, as, as that kind of irregular troop, um, and they do fight with him at the Green Fork, and then they'll fight again at the Battle of the Black Water. Um, and, and despite, you know, not necessarily being as well-armed and as well-armored, uh, still fight bravely and, and, and fight well and, and do the job they're intended to do the plenty mm. of them die in the process um but i think that there was that there's that idea as well of them being recruited by Tyrion, uh, just the same as as uh tywin himself recruits irregular forces you've got the the, the bloody mummers that we'll see later on yeah. um are in tywin's employ and they are the you know the a, a useful depiction of irregular forces forces that you wouldn't necessarily have with you in normal times and in, in quote unquote civilized times, but in wartime, they serve a purpose. They're, they're there to create mayhem. They're there to cause destruction. They're there to, to do the jobs that you don't necessarily want to do yourself and are, and are paid to do so. And then as the war breaks down, as the war progresses, um, but, but, you know, 
command and control structures start to fall apart somewhat. They are the forces that then roam around the countryside doing whatever they want in yeah. order to take what what they need because they're not necessarily employed anymore. I suppose the the stone crows don't necessarily fall into that quite as much, although the last scene kind of living in the woods uh, near King's Landing and, and I suppose kind of scratching out an existence for themselves there, in which case going over to, to banditry and almost returning to type in terms of how they're portrayed in this section uh, may well have been how, how they end up. But mm. but yeah, I think it's it is a it's a nice parallel anyway. In a series that's so fixated at various times on you know armored knights on horseback fighting yeah. in, in big battles and the rest of it, that you have other types of warriors um, who are very different but are still you know useful, and that usefulness is recognized by by those men who hire them. Now, in other eras of history, you're men- mentioning the Welsh and the Scottish forces, which might have been viewed as irregular at times during certain moments in British history. But I guess that my question is, a lot of times wartime is a time also for social advancement. Mm. So if a warrior who is sort of comes from nowhere, you know, no, no family, no nobility, whatever, acquits himself well on the battlefield, he might find social advancement if he does well. And, you know, a, a lord happens to appreciate what he has done mm. on the battlefield. Mm. Um, so could a member of, uh, quote unquote, irregular forces find social advancement in that way at wartime? Yeah, I mean, I think something like the Hundred Years' War perhaps has the best examples of of those types of troops. You have, you know, England and France are fighting a long war on the continent, and they both require large amounts of troops, either for armies or for garrison service. Um, but the Hundred Years' War doesn't continue for 100 years. Well, it goes on for longer anyway, but 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 it's not one long period of extended conflict. There are pieces and truces um, throughout the conflict. And, and during those times of peace and truce, those, those troops that have been attracted to the conflict or have mm. been hired to serve in it are not getting paid. And even garrison forces uh, are paid essentially half as much in, in time of peace than they are in time of war. So such men are down on wages or, or indeed maybe deprived of employment altogether. Uh, and in those circumstances, they very often band together, they form what are referred to as companies, um, mm. uh, and then start to just kind of raid the countryside and take what they want. Some of them will, will seize local castles if they can, set themselves up in those as, as their kind of base of operations, and will then raid around the surrounding countryside, either taking what they want or perhaps more likely uh, uh, extracting kind of protection money from them. Uh, so mm. that they, you know, saying to to towns and communities, okay, you pay us this amount of money, and we'll leave you in peace for six months. Um, but we'll be back again in six months' time, and if you don't pay up, we'll we'll destroy you then. Um, but this this happens in France a lot um, in the in the 14th century in particular. Mm. And you have mm. this idea of the the ecosher, the, uh, the those those kind of freebooting warriors who who just who just take what they want. But but some of these companies become quite big. Um, and and become quite organized and are able to hire themselves out to other areas where war is taking place. So when the Hundred Years' War moves to to Iberia, there's a lot of free companies go to to Spain and Portugal to fight in the armies of both sides. Hmm. Uh, And then they also go to Italy, um, where the the, the Italian city-states are almost always at war with each other to to some extent. Um, And you have one of the classic examples is the English warrior John Hawkwood, um, who is a you know a relatively low-born 
individual uh, rises through the ranks. He's, he's probably begins his military career as an archer uh, or a, certainly a, a foot soldier and then works his way up to leading a company and being and being well paid uh, for his his the service of his company in Italy dies at the, at the end of his life uh, is pretty much penniless at the end of it. But, um, hmm. but still is a man who, who has risen absolutely through the ranks because of his military service, his military ability mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and the company of men he's able to bring uh, around him. Uh, one of the other examples in, in the hundred years war is the, the French chronicle or the, the chronicle by the, the, the Hinault uh, chronicle, Jean Foissa, um writes about this character, the, the Basco de Molion, uh, and he has this. He meets him in a pub, um, and essentially kind of sits down by the fireside and has this extended chat with him, asking him about his career and, and, and writing down uh, the, the story of, of the Basco de Bolmion's career. And again, it's a it's a litany of service for one side or another, service in this battle or this garrison, but at various other times, just serving in a company, leading a company, uh, and mm. reading the countryside. You know, Fasar who's the great exponent of, of medieval chivalry. He loves writing about chivalric acts, sees no issue writing about this figure who, again, has risen from pretty lowly beginnings to become a, to become somebody uh, as a result of his, his wartime career. But writing yeah. about him in exactly the same way as he'll write about you know, the Black Prince in terms of, of his chivalry and his chivalric mm. acts. So, yeah, I think, you know, back to, back to the case of Braun and things, you know, the, the, in, in the medieval example, I think it would be, Oftentimes, that in the later Middle Ages, anyway, I think there is far less distinction um, between the different types of warriors. I think what you see in the later medieval period is is the elite trying desperately to, to retain a semblance of difference between them and the other warriors serving alongside them uh, on the battlefield. But mm-hmm. but those those distinctions between them are becoming far more blood as the period goes on and that'll all become even more so as as armies get bigger as as they become more permanent standing armies in the early modern period as you get the development of gunpowder weaponry um and that inability which is already there in the 14th century but that inability to distinguish between enemies when you're using weapons that can kill people at a distance how how can you behave chivalrically towards them how can you how right. can you ensure there's that element of, of of not killing someone who you could you could hold for ransom? I think all all these things are at play in that that later medieval period, mm. um, and so someone someone like Braun is quite like someone like Hotwood, uh, although I think Braun actually probably be, rises further <laughs> uh, ultimately <laughs> um, and, and does better, but but certainly the 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 example is there. So uh, notable introductions in this chapter, of course. Uh, the crofter's daughter, who we later learn her name is Taisha. Uh, just, you know, just because when I first read Game of Thrones, I had to look it up. Uh, for some of our American listeners, could you define the term crofter for us? Um, a, a croft will be a, a, well, a small piece of land, effectively, on which you, you would live. Um, uh, and you'll have some land uh, which you, on which you can grow some crop. Um, and perhaps farm an animal or two, um, and essentially it's for your own use. Uh, although, yeah, like suppose... a, su- a sustenance farmer. Yeah, know, but all, with with the possibility, I suppose, of of any excess being sold off for sure. for a little bit of profit. But it's uh, right. yeah, it, it, it's relatively small scale, so, so mostly subsistence farm. 
Yeah, okay. So we meet Taisha in, in Tyrion's memory, basically. Uh, we meet Gunther of the Stone Crows, Shaga. Uh, let's not forget Shaga's axe. Yes. We meet Shaga's axe, uh, Khan, Torek, and Jagot. Um, now, uh, notable departures. No one departs in this chapter. However, we do he- finally hear what e- what ended up happening with uh, Shigen. Uh, uh, Shigen departs, be- you know, because he's wounded by one of these mountain clan attacks. But Braun, as a good friend will do sometimes, ends his moaning, <laughs> ends his misery for him by a, a dagger in the head, basically. Yeah. Always the practical warrior, bro. <laughs> yeah, of course. And then, of course, uh, differences between the show and the book here. The story about Taisha is not brought up in this Ooh. episode of the show. Tyrion shares this when he meets Shay, and so Braun and Shay are in the room. Otherwise, this this chapter is pretty well represented in the show. I thought. Yeah, I, I watched it back. Um... Or, or watch the, the various episodes containing it. And, and yeah, it does seem to be quite well uh, replicated. I suppose season one generally sticks to the, the book quite closely. Yeah. It's when things start to move That's beyond right. that, things start to change. But yeah, I had, I had noticed that the, the Taisha episode had been moved. Um, and I suppose, yeah, it's an interesting, an interesting editorial choice. Yeah, and I think it's interesting in that where this is placed. So we really sort of have this mirror between Baelish's attempt to rise the ranks through marriage that go badly and Catelyn's memory followed by this chapter from Tyrion where you know in his memory he's trying to I suppose marry down so <laughs> to speak and that ends badly in both cases you know I think Martin is showing how he sort of class mismatches don't work out even if you love the the person uh, th- these are never going to really work out yeah i think it's that it's that reinforcement again of the hierarchy within western society and that it is a pretty yeah. firm and, and well-established thing although again as we'll see braun is able to to ultimately to break out of that uh, and right. become a lord himself although uh, that's right eventually <laughs> We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints. Except, it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. 
It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. And now Steve and I cover the High Sparrow. This is the episode where Marjorie marries Tommen, Littlefinger takes Sansa North to marry Ramsay, Tyrion is abducted by Jorah, and John executes Jano Slint. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Steve, if I was going to cast you either as Frankenstein or Frankenstein's monster, which role would you rather play? Well, are we doing an authentic uh, Mary Shelley adaptation or are we following the cinematic version? I want the Steve Osborne version and i want you to really explore the space okay well then obviously it's gonna be a shot for shot remake of de niro's uh uh turn as Frankenstein. man it was it's funny because i'm I'm a real big fan of of the the novel yeah and uh and it's fascinating because the monster is you know not really as monstrous as he's depicted right well he's a superhero in fact i would say that he's the first modern superhero right yeah and so there he's articulate he's he's clever he can Uh, he can like jump like the hulk or whatever super strong yeah so it really is about creation and the relationship with the creator Mm -hmm. and motivations and all i mean it's great it's it's it's, but so cinematically it's become yeah you got adam typology there right right and but film adaptations tend to focus so much on the uh, up to the creation and then the and then it's all, the monster is almost an afterthought i mean i know that like there are these iconic creatures but but not to the like they don't create it to have this necessarily this this big conflict it's mm-hmm. just that he's a monster right and maybe a misunderstood monster and like it, it's subtle tr- subtly tries to touch on things but it's yeah it, it kind of goes to the success of those early movies right that right forever Sort of the pop culture Frankenstein will dominate our imagination. Right. So if you look at it from the novel standpoint, it's like, well, do you want to be the creator playing God or do you want to be a superhero? Yeah. And that's where that's where the question becomes much harder for me. A superhero without a soul. So, yeah, that's uh, that's you know, fine. And and a superhero who's kind of alone in the world. You know, he knows he's the only one. It really is kind of. It's a lot like the mythology of Superman. You're asking me, like, do I want to be the uh, creature that's afraid of fire and is, like, you know, (laughs) probably throwing kids in the river or something? That's fine, too. You know what? I do. I love the book. Like, you do as well. But for my money, Phil Hartman's depiction of Frankenstein (laughs) is by far the best. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, nothing quite like Frankenstein, Tonto, and Tarzan. Kevin Needlin is Tarzan. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, if you haven't seen that SNL sketch, look up uh, Frank and <laughs> look up the panel discussion. <laughs> or, or when they're singing Silent Night. 
<laughs> All right, so we have a little Frankenstein's monster happening. Uh, we, do. we do. I and I absolutely just giggled with glee when Kyburn just kind of shh, just <laughs> just shushes him. Yeah, shh, easy friend. Yeah, <laughs> and he's totally just nonplussed by the entire situation. <laughs> I love that scene. I thought, man, this is kind of a. Actually, it was kind of a slow, drawn-out scene where really nothing's happening. Like Cersei wants to send a letter, and so right. Kyber's gonna sit down and write a letter. It's like, geez, this is. Look, I don't. <laughs> as much as I like Hamilton, letter writing is not going to be <laughs> very dramatic. And yeah. and this is where season five is just like yeah. Hey, I mean, it's been a lot more time on uh, dictation. We we really need more letter writing in this show. That's that's what we're missing. <laughs> but then the you know the corpse of the mountain kind of jolts or whatever. Right. Yeah, that was just so worth it. It was so worth the wait. All right. So tell me something. Uh, something about this episode that worked for you. Um, I I like the this sort of peak Marjorie Cersei dynamic. Oh, the tables have totally turned on those two. We're seeing Cersei. You know, she's basically. I mean, Tommen is just. I wouldn't even say he's a puppet because he doesn't even seem like he's. It, no. It seems like it. It should be like if Jeff Dunham just put Peanut on the stool and the stool just <laughs> and he just sat there slumped over during the entirety of Jeff Dunham's act. Uh, poor Tommen. I mean, no agency at all. And he doesn't even know that he doesn't know. You know, it's just he's. I mean, unlike Joffrey, who was just all about it, like, okay, I'm the king now, do whatever I want. Tommen's like, I'm the king. I'm gonna eat. <laughs> <laughs> and when Marjorie comes in the room and she's like, you know, she's she's really distraught and she says, you know, Cersei's doing this to get back at me, and he's totally confused. He's like, you guys aren't getting along, like. <laughs> Oh man, he's just playing that so earnestly, and she realizes how good she really is. Yeah, right. She's like, oh, "Of course, he 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 believed every word I said." <laughs> um, and then she's able to just kind of slip back into it, and he's just kind of relieved. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, I'm so grossed out by that whole thing. Yeah, I think you know now with with no Tywin, with the uh, Tyrion sort of bouncing around and. You know, we don't have, you know, in in the sense that we lost our heroes to some degree. When it we well, everyone's Bob. vacated King's Landing, right? Yeah, and so now we, and so now Cersei become like now we have a chance to really kind of beef up her her badness because I mean she was always lurking, like you know she I mean, she was definitely you know pulled mm -hmm. a lot of strings, but like when we were really dealing with other plot lines, I think in the last couple seasons. She was more just lurking as a force and Tywin. And as soon as Tywin showed up on the scene, he kind of eclipsed her. And now she's got such a sphere of influence. And 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 there's so there's such a power vacuum that yeah. um that someone just has to fill it and it's not a and she just took it. Parallel what you're saying is that it used to be that the all of the walls plots were sort of focused on the stuff that's happening around Jon Snow. Mm -hmm. So if you weren't invested in Jon Snow, the plot at the wall could kind of get a little stale. I feel like it's totally flips now. The the wall is super interesting, and everything that's happening in King's Landing kind of revolves around Cersei. So, but the difference is, I think that we're already like sort of four seasons in. 
and are kind of interested to see what else Cersei has to offer. Um, anyway, that's how I feel. The wall, the the wall is infinitely more complex at this point. I think. Right. I yeah, I agree. I, the the wall is the wall is where like now there's. It's interesting that that now there's political intrigue at the wall, where the wall was kind of a straightforward, like apolitical, right? This is almost like uh, the politicization of like say like the Department of Justice. Yeah. Right. 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 So yeah. So you've got these, an institution that's supposed to be apolitical, and then you've got these wildlings that are being held captive. You've got Stannis and then everything that Stannis brings, right? Bring, right. Bringing the religious fanaticism with him, bringing this weird dynamic between, you know, his daughter and his wife. So you got all that. And then you have the internal machinations of the people who hate John, who are now kind of living under his uh, lordship, I suppose. Um, so one of the, the major redirections by the show is that Sansa never goes north in the books. Okay. What happens is, so Sansa has this friend and she's sort of separated from her friend and her friend winds up back in the north and they basically pass this northern girl off as Arya Stark. And what happens is that Ramsay marries fake Arya. Oh. So Sansa is supposed to get married to some sort of suitor in the veil or something under Littlefinger's watchful eye. She never goes back to Winterfell. At least that's where we're at in the books. Okay. So this is a major difference. Major difference. And I guess the thing that didn't work for me was how easily... Sansa just decides that she's going to marry this guy that she's never met and she's given a choice. Yeah. She's given a choice and she doesn't want to do it. She doesn't want to get married to the family that betrayed and killed her brother and mother in their home. Yeah. She has a problem with the Boltons for good reason. And she's adamantly opposed to this idea. And Littlefinger just says one or two words and she resolves to just do it. I, I I was really having a hard time with that sort of 180 on her part. Yeah, I think I'm kind of in the same boat. I I, I think it's because and and I it's compounded for me because I'm not quite sure what Sansa is. Is she playing the game? Is she is she is she a naive girl? Is she trying to take agency? I mean, all these different questions. And it's like and now it's like when something like that happens, like well, okay. Either, it could still be either, right? Maybe that's intentional. I don't know. But like, on one hand, I'm like, okay, she agrees. Is she is she easily manipulated? I mean, that's a big thing to be manipulated into. Yeah, this is the this is how the last season ended. Is that she walked down the stairs? She had the full on, you know, hair color change. She had that kind of Hollywood Hulk Hogan. She had the Hollywood Hulk Hogan look, and I believed it. I be- I thought, okay. I'm actually believing that this character who suffered so much is now going to take some agency in her life. And maybe that's, maybe I'm looking at this all wrong. Maybe Littlefinger is like, okay, now I'm going to use this and make her think that she is actually taking control of her life when really she's still a pawn in my game or whatever. I think that that's how I'm supposed to read it. But I'm just having a hard time. Like I, I believe that she was an older, wiser Sansa, and now I, I'm questioning that. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm kind of, it, that's probably the closest thing. I'm be honest, this episode, I didn't have a ton of problems with. And I and so I'm having this wrestling match right now. Actually, I liked this episode quite a bit. I, yeah. I, I was really into this episode. This is the one, I think this may be the one thing that didn't work for me. Uh, but overall, for, this this <clears> is pretty good. I mean, like, tonally, I think I've been critical of the of the first two episodes to some degree. This one felt like a little bit more like we're, we're back into it. it yeah, really- I, I did. I, I, I like this quite a bit. Um, dismemberment count uh janice gets beheaded yeah that's a pretty good scene too i mean that's a really i mean that is, everything in the wall right now is working for me it kind of shows how i mean the family the ned stark family values you know you you have to be a person of honor but you got to be willing to cut off a guy's head right yeah so ned i mean ned brought those kids out when they were super young to watch those beheadings and he really kind of enforced that value in his sons so much so that, you know, Lord Karstark did not think Rob was going to chop off his head. And he does. Yeah. And, you know, so here's the lesson. If there's a boy raised by Ned Stark and you're wondering if he's going to chop off your head or not. <laughs> yeah. He's probably already fantasizing about your head. And you're going to want Stark blood in their veins if you want a good, clean chop. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because Theon Theon was not not adept. <laughs> it's it's funny that you mentioned that because in the book, uh, when Rob tries to chop off Lord Karstark's head, uh-huh. he like tries to use an axe or something, and it takes forever. Oh boy! For this week's Bird's Eye View, I want to talk about Bronze's eventual ascent to knighthood. As you might remember from A Storm of Swords, Tyrion wakes up and finds that Bronze is now Sir Bronze. And I'll read this little section. What is that ugly thing on your chest? Bronze grinned. My knightly sigil, a flaming chain green on a smoke-gray field. By your lord father's command. I am Sir Braun of the Blackwater now, Imp. See that you don't forget it. So, in effect, Braun gets knighted off page. Same with the show. He gets knighted off screen. For me, that brings up the question of how Braun is knighted. It seems like there are multiple, at least dual, but probably multiple ways to be knighted in A Song of Ice and Fire. In A Game of Thrones, here is Maester Lewin's account of how a knight becomes a knight. Lewin says, To be a knight, you must stand your vigil in a sept, and be anointed with seven oils to consecrate your vows. In the north, now only a few of the great houses worship the seven. The rest honor the old gods and name no knights. But those lords and their sons and sworn swords are no less fierce or loyal or honorable A man's worth is not marked by a sir before his name, as I have told you a hundred times before. Lewin's talking with Bran here and explaining to him why northern warriors and northern lords are not called sir. So, really, it would have never been Sir Bran Stark if ever Bran got to live out his dreams. But then the question is, is Lewin right? Is this a very religious ceremony that only happens if you worship the faith of the seven? If that's so, is Braun knighted in a sept? It's possible. 
There is another option, and that option we see in the Duncan Egg series. How does Sir Duncan the Tall become a knight? Well, he leans on this common notion that any knight can create another knight. And so Duncan just says, yeah, well, I was a squire for a while, and before he died, my, uh, my master made me a knight. But of course, in order to enter the list, he has to be vouched for by another knight. And this is all sort of a word of mouth kind of thing. And I think that the show leans on this a little bit in A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, which is, of course, an homage to the Duncan Egg series, when Brienne becomes a knight simply because Jamie makes her a knight. So how should we think of this? Should we think of it in terms of the any knight can make another knight theory? Or shall we think of this in Maester Lewin's terms, whereby this is a religious ceremony? That is my question to you. Is one of these answers more right than the other? Is one an ideal and the other one's just a shade of the ideal? Or can both of these realities exist simultaneously? Help me think about this. Book at baldmove.com. How do you deal with this apparent contradiction? And that is all for this week.